0: We're caught in this kind of double bind, whether or not I'm, I'm going to reopen my business, right? This is one of the classic yeah. questions of pandemics. Defoe deals with this also uh, in the very beginning of Journal of the Plague Year. Uh, he says, most people are leaving my quarters, my, my, my city section, my parish, uh, and fleeing into the country so that they can avoid the plague. But I have a business. So I have to stay here. There's an argument between the narrator and his brother-in-law over whether the narrator should keep his business open and face the threat of death or should uh, close the business and flee and protect his house, right? This is the dilemma that our entire society faces right now. Do we open the economy? Now, here's an argument given by the brethren. I'm going to keep my business open because I need to take care my profits i will trust my health to providence the narrator says now if you're going to trust one thing to providence why don't you trust your business to providence and go take care of your health well there's no answer to that right (laughs) this is the same situation that Hmm. we're in regardless of the technology and the level of information that we have right there's this element trust in the decision-making that we we need to take. And whether or not we're going to swing in one direction or the other is going to depend on which side we want to place our trust in, right? Where do we want to put that faith? In the case uh, of Defoe, it's faith in Providence. In our case, you know, it's faith in, uh, you know, Medical science right As, you know i 'm going to go to work and worry about my money um, and, because I trust medical science to come up, come up with the cure so, so we 're we're still in that same fundamental fundamental bind, regardless of the technology that we have i mean i mean we're, this is really the dichotomy that we 're facing now, um, and there is no right answer to it right? it 's very easy to be on a side, but when we 're looking like economy and health, economy and health well you know, how many times in life am I going to be faced with economics or health, economics or health, and at some level, it's a personal decision, but when it's a collective decision, it's very hard to push it one one way or the other, right? It's like collectively, we need to make public health decisions. We need to keep our public spaces clean. Well, doing that costs some people money, and costing some people money harms people in other ways, right? So it's, we're always we're always faced with this economy health economy health dichotomy.
1: You're listening to the Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University.
2: The economy. The elephant in the room. The 21.43 trillion dollar elephant in the room if we consider 2019 United States gross domestic product. Or maybe it's the approximately 22 trillion dollar elephant in the room if we consider it from the standpoint of the national debt. Yet again we could call it the 11.1 percent elephant in the room where current U.S. unemployment rates are concerned. And finally, we may look back on the COVID-19 pandemic and refer to it as the negative 4.9% elephant in the room, that being the decrease in the rate of growth of the global economy the IMF currently projects for 2020. However you want to frame it, there are many different, often unfathomably large, others amazingly specific indicators through which we can consider the health of our economy. For many of us, however, it's as simple as looking at our paycheck, looking at the bills we need to pay, and figuring out how to go about paying those bills and taking care of ourselves and our families based on that paycheck. In the early stages of the economic shutdown, as a response to mitigating the threat of COVID-19, that arithmetic took on a magnitude not seen by such a large number of workers in the United States since the Great Depression. When we began recording interviews for this series in early May, many millions of Americans had lost their jobs to that point. At the top of the show, You heard Associate Professor of Philosophy at Ball State University, Dr. Kevin Harrelson, speak to this dichotomy, this seemingly either-or situation with mutually exclusive terms, that was driving, if not defining, our decision-making process at the time. Do we choose the epidemiological health of the public, or do we choose the health of our economy? Of course, those terms are not mutually exclusive, and to be clear, Kevin was making the case that we too quickly jumped to believing that they are. That said, his deeper points are worth noting. In times of public health crises, the dualistic health versus economy way of thinking is, for better or for worse, a fundamental aspect of how our public leaders choose to respond to the crisis. Further, we as humans are so economically tuned that we are all making this decision on an individual basis, regardless of the larger public policies being implemented. In today's episode... We explore this tension through conversations about how the economy has been affected during the pandemic through both macro and microeconomic lenses, who has been most affected by the downturn in the economy, and what we may hope to learn from this unfortunate period that has so severely affected so many people where their finances and job security are concerned. To begin, we'll take an extended look at one indicator that seemed to be on everyone's mind back in early May, the aforementioned unemployment rate. At that time, the U.S. had set several records for the number of unemployment insurance applications filed in a single week. When we interviewed assistant professor of economics in the Krannert School of Management at Purdue University, Dr. Jillian Carr, on May 8, one of our first topics of conversation was the unemployment rate. To put this into context, at the time, the U.S. was reporting some 20.5 million job losses in the month of April alone
1: in the, in the great depression, the max was just under 25%. Right now we're just under 15%. Um, and you know, at the peak of the great recession, it was closer to like 10. They're, they're all very large and scary and, and such, but, um, yeah. but the, the acute quick job losses we saw in April they are so much bigger than what we saw in the Great Recession um, mm. that we had to sort of change the axes on the figures. It's not We're not as bad as the Great Depression yet. The, the losses, especially in terms of unemployment rates, were really prolonged during the Great Depression. And I think that that is something we might be able to sort of have a little bit of optimism about is that because we haven't seen large structural changes in the economy at this point, and we don't necessarily need to right with the great recession we mm-hmm. needed structural change in the economy it was unhealthy there were all kinds of bad things happening at the time um and so so that structural change was sort of part of bringing us out of it but we could we could plausibly Recover very quickly here, whereas during the Great Depression, you know, I think it was something like six or seven years where they had unemployment rates over fifteen percent in a row. Um, So we, we hopefully won't see anything like that, and we shouldn't, just given the nature of the the current recession.
2: As you heard from Jillian, one of the main points of comparison to the rate of job loss in April was the Great Depression. Of course, economic data for an era spanning late 1929 until the late 1930s is not necessarily the most accurate. That does not, however, make the numbers Jillian is sharing with us any less startling or worthy of consideration. One thing to keep in mind regarding the job loss numbers in the U.S. during the height of the economic shutdown is how these numbers are reported. When the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS, gathered this data in April, many of the job losses were being reported by the workers themselves. Given the uncertainty of the job losses many workers were experiencing then, in terms of the potential duration or permanence of the job loss, and the likelihood that those self-reporting workers would indeed eventually get their job back, the numbers themselves were a snapshot, with some margin of inaccuracy. Granted, it was an alarming snapshot, and the inaccuracy was not of the sort that would have changed our interpretation of those numbers in kind, merely in degree, if at all.
1: I think that they are actually getting their... Uh, indicators of whether these losses are temporary or longer term um, from the workers themselves. Some of that might vary. It might be sort of perception-based. Um, the The actual report that the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out is very clear, and I actually would recommend, I frequently just see what Twitter You know, summarizing, I see what Justin Wolfers has to say about it on Twitter. You know, I kind of, I tend to get a lot of my information on the jobs reports that way. But I, Mm. uh, I definitely recommend reading the documents themselves because they break down things in really interesting ways, including this. So the workers were saying, they said that the workers, 80% of them reported that it's temporary. Um, And so Mm. Right now, if you are a bartender, if you are a stylist, you're a nail tech, um, there are all kinds of these sort of um, salon and hospitality related jobs where, you know, it's very clear to you that this should be a temporary job loss. Um, So that said, that I think that's where that's coming from. Um, you know if you 're furloughed by Subaru, just the same um, so i don 't know at what point maybe it 's when they survey again that people might report like now i 'm not so sure I think it is permanent or my employer has now said that it 's permanent, um, but at this point, I think it 's some combination of workers recognizing that their jobs are not gone, that they 're just not doing them right now, um, and potentially official messaging coming from from these companies to the workers.
2: When we first spoke to Jillian, it was still early in the timeline for reporting economic indicators, the unemployment rate or otherwise, especially if we were hoping that data would give us a sense of the total effect of the shutdown. Like all data, what exactly economic data is telling us changes as the length of the time span at which we are looking changes, and with those changes, our assessments and outlooks will change accordingly. In early May, we were still firmly in the midst of the economic shutdown and the swelling unemployment rates. By and large, most state economies in the U.S. began reopening, to one degree or another, in late May and early June. Sadly, some states are now dialing back those reopenings, or at least revising their approaches and protocols. To get an update on some of these numbers, namely, the current unemployment rate and how it compares with that of the Great Depression, we spoke with Jillian again on July 21st. Before we hear Jillian's updates, we wanted to take a moment to thank her for taking the time to speak with us again. As with our first conversation, some of the numbers were startling, but they were also insightful and very helpful for the economic novices trying to wrap our heads around the current situation.
1: What's really interesting about this is that the April and May numbers coming from the BLS, they were having a really hard time with this because they do a lot of their estimates based on surveys. And people just didn't know how to respond to surveys about this. So they'd say, why are you out of work? And people were picking other. And they were like, well, does other mean COVID? What does it mean? And so what's interesting is that if you look at the numbers from April, May, April and May specifically, you're gonna see that there are huge ranges. So the official number coming from the Bureau of Labor Statistics for April is 14.4%, but they've gone back and they said, it probably got to 20. Um, And that's if they sort of go through and they shade up for all the people who they think answered it wrong. And then they revised the May number, which was 13%, which is much better, right? Or somewhat better, it went down. Uh, they revised that up to 16%. So we, you could say, you know, it was 14.4% in April, 13 in May, based on the surveys as they read, but when they went through and they sort of rescaled them for what they think was sort of a misclassification, it's April was 20% and May was 16%. And so that's where this discussion of, do we think about the Great Depression comes into play? Because 25% was where we think they maxed out. And anytime we're looking at historical data, it can't be that accurate, but but we're getting a lot closer to that than we are to say, you know, the great recession where we maxed out at just over 10% unemployment. So, so I would say those are the numbers we want to keep an eye on now. And the June numbers are, better still. And they say that they think they fixed the misclassification problem. So it might just have to do with how they ask the question on the surveys, I think. Um, And we're all sort of settling into this being a bit of a new normal for better or worse. And so people kind of see COVID-related unemployment like they see normal unemployment. So June, we were down to 11.1%. And I think it's worth noting that June is the month where we had the most reopening of the economy. And so it makes a lot of sense that the people who were furloughed before are now coming back to their jobs. And if we look at the local economy here in Lafayette, West Lafayette, you know everybody I know who works at Subaru has been back since June. Um, And they're a good example of folks who were sort of furloughed and they were able to collect unemployment. I I think Subaru paid them for two weeks and then they all went on unemployment, but it was this temporary furloughed type of unemployment. And a lot of those people are going back to their jobs. And so that's why we're seeing the numbers sort of look surprisingly positive. I mean, economists have been pleasantly surprised by those numbers, but I I think that there is still potentially a lot to worry about. Um, The biggest thing being that, yes, the furloughed folks are going back to their jobs, but the number of people who are now permanently unemployed, so their jobs are gone, um, in terms of layoffs. So if we look at folks who are laid off, so there are temporary layoffs, which is a furloughing and then the permanent layoffs, which is like your job is just gone. Those numbers are rising both in raw numbers and as a percentage of layoffs. And a lot of that is that, you know, the number of temporary layoffs is falling at the same time, but, but even the raw number of permanent job, you know, detachments is going up. So, so it seems like systematically we are losing jobs because Businesses are going under at this point, um, so so that's that's the that's one of the dark sides to these potentially good numbers. The other is that it's a really sort of unequal uh, impact in terms of who's losing jobs. So um, so women are losing more jobs; they're more likely to be unemployed right now. Uh, so we're Hispanic workers and people with less than a high school degree, and a lot of that comes from which sectors are being hit the most. So a lot of that is leisure. Um, hospitality, retail work, as well as like some manufacturing, you know, it's hard to run a meat packing plant with social distancing, for example, a lot of really well known outbreaks have occurred at them. So, so these are the folks who are, who are losing their jobs uh, at, a, at a higher rate.
2: Toward the end of the first segment, you heard Dr. Jillian Carr mention who has been hit hardest by the staggering job losses reported since late March. The inequities in the data are clear. Women and people of color in the workforce have been hit harder by the pandemic, not to mention in other categories of measurable impact, as we discussed in episodes three and four of the series. Jillian also mentioned the kinds of jobs that were being reported among the job losses. Certain sectors, for example tourism, have been affected for obvious reasons. As a result, workers in the tourism sector have suffered. Another such kind of job she mentioned is at meat packing plants, several of which had to be shut down due to outbreaks at their facilities. In the second segment of today's show, we will look at food supply chains, a crucial aspect of our economy, and how they and the jobs that comprise them have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll start with Kevin Harrelson's insight that for many of us, supply chains generally speaking were not something we paid much attention to before the pandemic to recall the term from our previous episode however we are all now hyper aware of such things in one sense this expands our understanding of the economic processes that make our world work the way it does but in another sense this is yet another aspect of our world about which we are now anxious all as a result of the necessity of staying at home and as kevin puts it disengaging from our usual daily lives our jobs and other economic interactions included.
0: You know, there are things I know about the world that I didn't know. I mean, I didn't think about how toilet paper was distributed. Uh, and now we're all thinking very deep, or at least for a few weeks in, in March and April, we were all thinking very deeply about that. What are the, what, what are the supply chains uh, of, you know, food items of, of these basic necessities, who makes these things, who produces
2: them, who sells them,
0: right? So, it's like, so we all became a little bit more engaged with the world by virtue mm-hmm. of having to disengage with it.
2: Indeed, nowadays, it seems that many of us have vested interests in aspects of our lives we previously took for granted. As Kevin says, we are engaging in things by virtue of disengaging with our pre-COVID routines and livelihoods. I, for one, could admit that I had not previously used the term supply chain prior to March 2020 as much as I have since then. But what exactly is a supply chain? We discussed food supply chains and global food insecurity with Dr. Nalupa Gunaratna in late May. Nalupa is an assistant professor of public health at Purdue University, where she also holds a courtesy appointment in the Department of Nutrition Science and is a core faculty member of Advanced Methods at Purdue, or AMAP. She is currently working on the Engaging Fathers for Effective Child Nutrition and Development in Tanzania, or EFFECTS Project, which is developing community-based interventions to improve the nutrition and early development of young children in rural Tanzania. Here's Nalupa with a quick primer on what a food supply chain is and how global food supply chains work.
3: A food supply chain kind of starts with producers, farmers, fishermen, um, people who produce raw food um, and takes you all the way to retailers so restaurants and grocery stores and that sort of thing. So in between those groups of people are people who transport food, distributors, people who process, packaging plants, wholesalers. So there's a lot of steps that take the food mm. farm all the way to where you, where you pick it up. And and the food supply chain is just one part of the larger food system. So a food system is that supply chain, but it's also something called a food environment. And that is just the environment of food around us. So it's, it's your grocery store and your restaurants and, you know, your cafeterias and the vending machine that's downstairs from the office, all of this stuff where you, you the points at which you can get access food. So our personal preferences, our cultural background, like things we like, the things that influence us kind of interact with that food environment. And that makes us buy food and procure food and prepare it and eat it in certain ways. And that ultimately affects our diet, our nutrition, our health. And so that's why the food system kind of all gets together to to affect health at the end of the day.
2: I think I speak for many of us when I say that walking through a grocery store with entire shelves and long stretches of the household cleaning products aisle entirely empty, as was the case back in April, at least here in Indiana, was surreal. But it was a visual reminder of just how our supply chains had been interrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. The concept Nalupa explained of food supply chains being part of a food environment, with its economic, regional, and cultural components, was one of the most insightful concepts we learned while putting this series together. That larger concept of the food environment takes on a very different meaning, however, when we consider the very specific environmental conditions of certain aspects of the food supply chain. Take, for instance, meatpacking plants. You may recall that in April, several Smithfield Foods meat processing plants were forced to close as a result of a critical number of workers in those plants having tested positive for COVID-19. As with so many newsworthy stories during the early stages of the shutdown, these stories opened our eyes not only to the environments and conditions of the plants themselves, but also to the lives of the workers who have to endure these conditions. Sadly, these workers, as with many essential laborers, were expected to work in environments that are, clearly, very conducive to the spread of a virus such as COVID-19, forced to choose between their livelihood and their health, a real-world representation of the dichotomy Kevin Harrelson was explaining at the beginning of the show. Here's Nalupa again discussing the conditions at meatpacking plants and other food production sites, why they are so conducive to spreading the virus, and how the closing of, for example, meatpacking plants then has an adverse effect back up the food supply chain.
3: The whole meatpacking story in the U.S. is a, a really, really good example because farmers who raise animals, it's a big business. They they have kind of a schedule where they. Animals are being raised and at some point they need to go somewhere to be slaughtered and to be processed, packaged into ways that we can buy them in the grocery store. And the people who work in these meat processing plants, they work close to each other. There's opportunities for people to get sick. And so if a plant needs to close down because there's too much infection and people are getting seriously ill, then the farmers who are raising these animals, these animals can't just keep growing and they they you know there are other younger animals that are being raised on the same farm at the same time, so there's um, not much a farmer can do, so a lot of times there 's been a lot of euthanizing of farm animals because they just cannot go to slaughter and don 't become food and it's it's really it 's pretty tragic so that 's a really good example where like it 's really issues of people within the food supply chain and these opportunities for them to interact. Another place that might be of concern is when you have um food that requires, like crops, for example, that require human labor for harvesting. So you think strawberries and things like that where you rely on farm workers who also have to work close with one another and may or may not be in the best of environments, there might be opportunities, there might not be PPE for them. There, that's also um, a place where, where there's really potential for risk and disruption.
2: Another image you may recall from during the economic shutdown was the long lines of cars outside of food banks. With record job losses and the obvious disruption this causes to people being able to afford basic necessities like food for themselves and their families, many Americans needed to turn to local programs and organizations for assistance. Yet, at the same time, there were also stories of farmers throwing away tons of potatoes, to take one example as the distributor that typically purchased them was unable to do so. The general economic turmoil had not only affected the food supply chains, but also had a negative effect on demand, to some extent a result of both the loss of wages reducing spendable income, but also the stay-at-home orders preventing some people from going to the grocery store. As use of Instacart and curbside pickup increased, and availability of certain products decreased, our eating habits and grocery lists also changed. And if you review your grocery store receipts as closely as I do, you have no doubt also noticed the increase in prices of some products. We'll save that diatribe for another pod. Nonetheless, it struck us as frustrating, to put it mildly, that during a time of such hardship, with so many people struggling to put food on the table and enduring the anxieties of the uncertainty of their own sustenance, that so much food would simply be discarded, sent to the landfill. We asked Nalupa to help us understand why there was so much food being thrown away. Though her answer was insightful, it also revealed an all-too-common refrain in our economic reality. Ultimately, it comes down to money.
3: Well, I mean, it's, it's money, right? Because I, if you're a farmer and you have you know tons and tons of potatoes and you cannot sell it, you've lost the money that you put into it already, so you're already kind of in trouble um, economically from that, that just loss. And then you say, well... Mm. This food and people are hungry and it's going to go to waste. Well, are you then already at a loss going to rent a truck to send that to the food bank? Um, mm-hmm. Who's going to shoulder that cost? And is it fair for the, the can the farmer really do it? Um, so I'm sure they would, you know, they spent effort, you know, that's their livelihood to create that food. So I'm sure it's. you know, it's not a thing that they want to be doing, but it's even more of a burden. Um, so the, there is um, I mean it, with the with the different like relief bills and stuff in the United States, there is a program that the government has the u s government has to buy food from farmers and then send it to um to food banks and to other sources to try and help them meet so that's a place where a government can come in um because they would have the resources and the money to say like okay, I can pay for the the transportation, the storage, the packaging that has to happen. Um, Because you have to take that, you have to maintain the safety of that food, you have to store it properly so it doesn't spoil, Um, take it from point A to point B, which could be quite far. So you have to pay for the fuel and the driver and all of that. Package it in a way that like someone can, a family can come and pick up, you know, a box of food.
2: With the images of empty shelves in the grocery stores and seemingly perfectly edible food being thrown out, one scary thought occurred to us, as it may have for some of you. Is it possible for us? as in humanity, the entire world, to run out of food? It may seem an overreaction to those aforementioned empty shelves, but this is exactly why we wanted to speak with an expert in global food supply chains and food security. Fortunately, Nalupa put our minds at ease. She did, however, raise an unfortunate and, in her determination, more alarming problem where food is concerned, access.
3: It really is, can people access the food that is there? How do we like whether that's physical access of being able to go to the store, or not being healthy enough to go, or economic because you can't afford it because prices go up. I mean, there there are places where there are some shortages and things where major things are happening, um, like big conflict areas. But I'm I'm not so worried about supply. It's it's really more of like getting food to the people who need it so that everybody can have adequate nutritious healthy food so that they can live a good life you know at all times um and according to their preferences and their background and their cultures and everything that's what food security is i think that's much more of the concern but that's been there before um i mean th- there are risks always to the food supply and climate change um is something to think about but that um but all of those issues are are still there and still need creativity to, to solve and they're all they're all linked
2: If some of us are now paying a little more attention to our food supply chains, where our food comes from, and the inequities around access to food and nutrition that constitute a public health concern of their own, then perhaps we are all in some small portion more likely to not only appreciate the food that we have, but also to take care to be putting the best we have access to into our bodies, and to be thankful for all of the people who have labored to provide this food for us. Perhaps we will also rethink how we manage our own food waste or at least our less-than-efficient food-buying, eating, and discarding habits. As we mentioned, Nalupa opened our eyes to many aspects of the food supply chain when we spoke in May. It was the presence of so many people that struck me the most. I realize it may sound painfully oblivious to say that I now have a better appreciation for the people who help bring food to my table, but it's true. From the farmers and people raising livestock, to those who work at the production and storage facilities, distributors, truck drivers, retailers, chefs, line cooks, servers, all the way to, importantly during this pandemic, the people who masked and gloved themselves every day to clean the grocery stores we visit. To the people who wiped down and stocked the shelves, the people that risked their own health to maintain their livelihoods and to help the rest of us maintain ours, we wanted to say thank you to an under-recognized labor force that will, for us at least, forever be elevated in terms of their centrality to both the healthy functioning of our economy and our daily lives.
1: I think this has
3: hopefully helped people realize things about where their food comes from and the consequences, but I think we're still early on. I think like, there are times where I feel like I don't understand the full enormity of what's going on because it has happened so quick. It's, we're still kind of in that acute stage of like, some, there's something new every day. Um, And you read something new and you read something major, but you can't absorb it because there's 10 other major things happening. And that's okay, maybe of needing a little bit of time as well to really understand what's going on.
2: In the final segment of today's show, we will return to our conversation with Purdue economist Dr. Jillian Carr. Having looked at a macroeconomic subject in the first segment of the episode, that is, job markets and the unemployment rate, and then in the second segment having examined one such kind of essential job, especially during the pandemic and beyond, that being the role of workers in the food supply chain, we now turn our focus to Jillian's primary area of research, microeconomics. In a nutshell, Microeconomics is the branch of economics that studies individual and company behavior as it pertains to decision-making, especially where resources and the interactions among these individuals and companies is concerned. Quick interjection, we wanted to thank Jillian again for so graciously answering our macroeconomic questions, as that is not her primary field of research. It certainly doesn't help when we were formulating questions like this. One of my theories is... People right now, because we don't know what it's going to... I mean, look, I think a lot of us have this, sort of, like... Yeah, so... there's that. But we made our way through it, and are all the more informed for it. Nevertheless, in the final segment of today's episode, Jillian shares with us some interesting data that reflects, for better and for worse, how human behavior changed, especially where crime and policing are concerned. During the nearly nationwide stay-at-home orders in the spring. You may recall that in an earlier episode, we mentioned that Jillian is an affiliated scholar with the Policing Project out of the NYU School of Law. According to their mission statement, the Policing Project partners with communities and police to promote public safety through transparency, equity, and democratic engagement. The data we are about to hear Jillian discussing is but one area of human behavior that she researches. We wanted to remind listeners that we initially spoke with Jillian on May 8th. To put this into context, that was 17 days before the murder of George Floyd at the hands of police. We addressed that topic and racial inequities and injustice in the fourth episode of the series in our interview with Dr. Faith Day. In the conversation we are about to revisit with Jillian, the murder of George Floyd and the movement around changing the way policing is done in the United States did not come up, given when the conversation occurred. Nonetheless, If we look at the data she shared with us and what this reflects of human behavior, it is in some ways distressing, but in other ways insightful as to how, in particular, social isolation, stay-at-home orders, and physical distancing changed how and what crimes were being reported and policed.
1: What's really interesting and challenging about looking at crime as a result of COVID broadly is all those things that you mentioned. So stay-at-home orders have their own effects. Um, The crappy economy has its own effects. And, and those things are, you know, having real impacts on real crime levels, but then there's also reporting issues. So many cities have, like, told their officers, don't get too close to people, don't interact with them too much, you know, you don't want to catch it. Um, some places have stopped enforcing drug crime, for example. Um, so they've just said, like, I don't care if I see anybody selling or using on the street, you know, unless they're, you know, breaking a state home order, um, I'm not going to do anything about it. So to think about the underlying crime stuff, you, uh, you really sort of hit one of the more nuanced points on the head there, which is people being out and about is one of the biggest predictors of of crime, Uh, both as the victim and as the perpetrator. Um, The more we interact with other people, the more just like bad things happen. We would expect things like assaults between strangers. So things like bar fights, those should be dropping a lot road rage should be falling you know there uh, I would also say that muggings should be falling right anything where Mm -hmm. it really depends on two people being in the same place at the same time or a group of people um, for that particular crime to occur so stay-at-home orders are going to be reducing people's interactions with each other Um, also if you have less income you're interacting less so that's going to be sort of compounding that but sending people home has its own effects on crime so um, Again, reporting is its own separate issue, but we worry a lot about domestic violence in these settings. This is something that is notoriously underreported. Um, even here in Lafayette, we're seeing you know constant rates of domestic violence. There was a story in uh, WLFI about it a couple of weeks ago where they mentioned that domestic violence is increasing or staying constant. Also, I have a, a co-author who works with lots of physicians, and she said that they're seeing uh, about the same number of cases, but the, the injuries are more severe as well. So, so that's a real problem with taking people off the streets. And and there's sort of a question of, you know, are these assaults that would have been on, you know, outside acquaintances that are being transferred, or is this sort of new domestic violence that's being escalated due to the tension and the fact that everybody's, you know, stressed out all the time and in the same place and lacking resources. And so it's, it really is sort of a perfect storm um, for domestic violence in a lot of ways. And that's, that's just the stay-at-home orders. I mean, losing income can have tons of impacts as far as people needing resources, going out and you know, trying to steal from retail establishments, grocery stores. Um, you know, there's more reason to mug people, but less opportunity. Um, so so crime, crime can really kind of be all over the place.
2: It should be pointed out that some of the crimes you heard Jillian mention, take for instance, drug use and sales are already policed in ways that are a product of and perpetuate racist policies and racial inequities. But here we wanted to share these changes in human behavior to further highlight some of the complexities that economic shutdowns, with their stay-at-home orders and job loss, can have on how we interact with one another. On the positive side, less interaction with our fellow humans reduces the risk of certain crimes. If we aren't around one another, the potential to harm one another obviously decreases. That said, We are also, to call back to the previous episode, experiencing heightened stress and anxiety, especially where our financial stability and job security are concerned. While that heightened stress and anxiety is not necessarily a cause for the increase in certain crimes, it can certainly be a factor. So the data in May, during the midst of the economic shutdown and stay-at-home orders, was telling us that some crimes of human interaction, if you will, were decreasing. Still, other crimes especially those we often think of as occurring in the household, like domestic violence, were remaining constant or increasing. And according to Gillian, some of the decrease in crimes may have been due to a decrease in the reporting of those crimes. Sadly, however, one category of crimes that was actually increasing in May was violent crime, at least where the city of Chicago was concerned. Here's Gillian again.
1: I've taken a look at the city of Chicago's publicly available crime data, and as soon as the state-of-home order went into effect, Um, most types of crime fell by about 25%. Um, Some fell to zero even. And those are, you know, we don't think that the crime is going to zero. We think that that's, you know, changing enforcement priorities. But there are some things that have stayed reasonably constant. And that's going to be a lot of your most violent type of offenses. So things like shootings, staying pretty constant, aggravated assaults, staying reasonably constant. So you're Mm. much more serious uh incidents are are not really going down the way that other things are and so that possibly speaks to those crimes going down in general it could speak to maybe some of the role of reporting here but typically when you take people off of the street through something like a curfew so i've done some work on curfews before taking the sort of witnesses and the potential um innocent bystanders off the street actually makes it more appealing to to commit more serious crimes and so. And so as you remove, you know, potential victims and witnesses, then then you're, you know, you make it a little easier to do some of these types of offenses. So there could be some of that going on as well.
2: In the same way that reducing the number of people out and about and interacting with one another could contribute to the decrease in the number of crimes being committed, it also reduces the number of potential witnesses. Thus, the number of people who might otherwise be in a position to report a crime decreases. The data that Jillian is sharing with us is, as she has said, affected by the reporting of crimes. But as Jillian points out here, even before the pandemic, many people were not reporting crimes to begin with. The lack of reporting during the pandemic could also have been affected by the stress and anxiety people were under. So while some of the crime data Jillian is presenting may not have decreased in reality as much as the numbers show, still other crimes may have legitimately decreased. The key takeaway here, however, is that one and the same thing, namely, less people interacting outside of their homes, was affecting both the potential to commit crime and the likelihood that someone would call it in.
1: Anything that impacts the reporting as well as the outcome means that the effect of that event on our measures of the outcome are gonna be flawed. Um, So I think when Mm -hmm. it comes to where we might see that, like what kinds of offenses, I think we have to think about how those normally get reported in terms of who's reporting them. So for example, if somebody witnesses theft uh, at a grocery store, so I've done some work on theft at grocery stores, they're not typically calling the police, they're typically reporting it to the store, right? And so maybe that's the channel that breaks down, is they say, oh, I saw somebody steal some, some cereal, I'm not going to bother reporting them, because either A, you know, I know how bad the economy is, and uh, they might just need that cereal, uh, or it could be that they're like, I'm too busy trying to deal with my kids who are going crazy in the grocery store, or I left them at home for 15 minutes and I have to get back before they burn it down. You know, there are yeah. a million reasons that, that that part could break down. Um, but my my guess would be that, you know, anything that's going through official loss prevention at stores or through management would probably still be happening if it gets to them. So So my guess is that the things that might, you might really see changes in reporting on would be, potentially gunshots. Reporting of crime where you're not the victim has a serious collective action problem, right? So we all hear a gunshot and uh, we just assume someone else will call it in. Um, a lot of the time gunshots never get called in. So I've got a data set on audio sensed gunshots. So we know exactly when and where they occur. And then we also know how many people called in gunshots um, at the same time in the same place. They are so like, I couldn't even match them to each other. I couldn't say this is someone calling about this gunshot because the locations and the times are so all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we look at it though, and we compare just the ratios based on days and such of how many get called in, it's something like 7% actually get called in. And so I could see something like reporting of gunshots going down. Um, The other thing that often people do call in is, you know, uh, disturbance calls. I might call the cops and say, I think, you know, think there's a domestic event happening next door that could also go down based on this like you know I'm too busy dealing with my own sort of stressful family issues that I don't call that Mm. in so so those types of things could go down that's where a lot of it gets initiated initiated or I'm calling in to say hey somebody stole this from me or somebody stole why for me and so that then there's a good chance that you know Stealing from people's residences is going down just because, you know, I dare somebody to try to steal something from my house while I'm in it all day, every day, right? It's a lot harder to do that now. And so those, you know, legitimately are probably going down.
2: As with the job market and unemployment data we discussed with Jillian earlier in the spring, we wanted to reach back out to her for updates on the microeconomic data as well. As a reminder, she spoke with us again on July 21st, so just about two and a half months after we interviewed her in May. As you'll hear from her momentarily, she had updated data to share with us on a few topics that we heard her discussing a moment ago, including violent crime data and domestic violence reporting. Sadly, the updated numbers do not sound great, especially where the reporting of domestic violence and child abuse are concerned.
1: There's an article yesterday on NPR about the fact that most crime is falling. And a lot of that is due, as we talked, to before, we talked about before, just this idea that Crime occurs when people interact with each other, right? So, so a lot of crime is driven by interaction, and we just don't have that. So most crime is going down, but um, there's been a pretty high-profile string of shootings and murders uh, in a lot of really big cities. Um, part of it is it's getting a lot of press because the president's making it a bit of a talking point, but they are, you know, kind of going back up in a way that's given that everything else is going down, we might not expect. And those are all like low frequency events. And so we're all very cautious to read anything into that. But it sounds like there there is, you know, potentially some increases in, in violent, like most extreme violent crime, um, which is sort of surprising. Um, but again, you know, it's small sample size, we'll have to see if these things continue. But A lot of that could come from the idea that there are less witnesses around um, and that, you know, police are trying to minimize their interactions with citizens unless they need to, which makes perfect sense. We, you know, they don't want to get sick. They also don't want to bring anyone into jails. And so a lot of places they're issuing citations instead of arresting people. And, And that, again, I mean, if you look at the list of you know, the greatest uh, numbers of, of cases that are linked to a specific location or a spot. Many of them are correctional facilities. And so, so that's become a really a big question is how do we, you know, how do we make sure that we know who can be released safely and, and who can't? I mean, a lot of what we're doing in terms of um, keeping people either in jails or in prisons, it's not actually that they are dangerous. It's, you know, purely punitive or we want to make sure they show up for court. And a lot of those folks, they're trying to release. Um, they're trying to get them out of those those facilities. So that's that's the one thing. The other thing that um, that I've found that's kind of interesting, and it's related to the same question of how do police interact with individuals. And this is from some work that I'm doing on domestic violence. And we can show that calls to 911 for domestic violence go up quite a bit uh, during the pandemic. And that's shown up. I don't know, I've seen three or four other papers that can su- substantiate that as well, that people are calling 911 more often for domestic violence, but um, the actual incident reports that occur and then arrest of individuals related to those incidents, those are occurring at a lower rate, but also lower overall. So we're just seeing less official incident reports of domestic violence um, that are that are going on. And, and we don't know if it has to do with the types of of violence and, and incidents, you know, this, the 911 calls typically also include domestic disturbances. And so we're thinking a lot of it might have to do with if you're at home and your neighbor is having a fight, you're more likely to call 911 on them now. So, so there's this interesting reporting issue as far as who is reporting domestic violence and domestic disturbances. We know that reporting of child abuse is going down because teachers do most of it. Um, and that's, you know, very worrisome from a societal perspective, but trying to disentangle what are the changes to reporting of domestic violence versus the actual like incidence of violence versus, you know, pressing charges and arresting perpetrators? And so so there's this there seems to be a bit of a breakdown somewhere in that process. And we're trying to pinpoint what the actual cause is.
2: We wanted to take a moment to say that though policing has changed during the pandemic insofar as some police departments have attempted to reduce human interaction during the pandemic to reduce their own risk of exposure to the virus and some have tried to reduce the number of people they detain in jail and prison facilities to reduce spread of the virus in those locations, we also think questions need to be asked as to why certain police felt it necessary to use deadly force against people who had attempted to use a counterfeit $20 bill, for example, or who had fallen asleep in a drive-thru during the midst of this public health crisis. We realize that policing, in particular, especially as federal forces move into major U.S. cities, is a hot and weighty subject currently. We certainly don't want listeners to think we are unaware of this, but if you've been listening to this series to this point, we trust you know how we feel about larger social issues that demand scrutiny and attention, perhaps now more than ever given the fact that a potentially fatal virus continues to threaten us. Nevertheless, we wanted to share this data because we think it tells us something interesting about human behavior. The sad truth is that human beings commit crimes, and often those crimes seriously or fatally harm other human beings. As much as we want to emphasize the need for policing reform, which Jillian and her colleagues at the Policing Project research, as are so many other organizations and citizens around the country and the world currently, we also thought looking at how crime, reporting of crimes, and policing have been affected during the pandemic serves two purposes. First, it tells us an interesting story about one specific aspect of human behavior and interaction before, during, and after the pandemic. And second, It highlights the serious need for change, both in terms of how we treat and interact with one another, but also in terms of the underlying inequities that this conversation, though perhaps not explicitly in this episode, ultimately speaks to.
1: There are a lot of reasons we're asking what is the role of police right now. Obviously, a lot of that is coming through, you know, people saying that we should defund the police. But I think that also seeing how police are managing this whole thing anyway is actually another reason to think about, okay, what is the role of police? Like, why are we really incarcerating people in jails, right? So we put them in a jail to hold them for some temporary basis, typically. Now there's a real question of, if they're not going to hurt anyone, why do we even do that? I have a friend who's a DA, and he was saying, or an ADA, and he was saying, you know, we just we're not holding anyone in jail, we're not having any in-person trials, like we're just trying to trying to keep the backlog from building, but, but there's no reason to have anybody in our jail awaiting trial. None of these folks are, are actually going to hurt anyone.
2: As we wrap up today's episode, we wanted to take a step back and revisit one of the first topics we wrestled with in the series, in which we heard Kevin Harrelson addressing at the top of the episode, the dilemma of choosing between our health and our economy. You may recall that in the first episode we posed this as a version of sorts of a trolley problem. If we knew the difference in the decrease of total COVID-19 fatalities that shutting down the economy for a short stretch in the spring to mitigate the spread of the virus could affect, versus how many lives a temporary economic shutdown might cost us in the long term due to the consequences on individuals and families' physiological, mental, and financial health, would knowing those numbers and how differently they might look affect how we would make our decision? We also wondered how a fair, to be sure, concern over the long-term health of the economy might affect our decision-making. Our hope here is not to sound detached or crass. When you study philosophy and have, if only to a small degree and with a lowercase p, philosophical questions, you often challenge yourself and your interlocutors to imagine worst-case scenarios and to be, if only momentarily, detached and objective, if either of those adjectives is even possible to apply here. As we did in May, We again asked Jillian more recently what the short-term versus long-term benefits of shutting down the economy might be. Frankly, given the current situation in the US, our economic shutdown was unsuccessful to a degree that a shutting down versus not shutting down comparison is difficult. What we do know, as Jillian tells us here, is that other places did a much better job of mitigating the spread of the virus and of putting themselves in a position to prioritize both public health and safety and a healthy and manageable economic recovery.
1: I think that what we learned from the beginning of the pandemic is that shutting down seemed to control the virus better than what we're doing now, clearly. Um, And I would say that thinking about the data that we could consider for whether we sort of played our cards right at the beginning is I'd say we look at the European Union. They were hit about as hard as we were around the same time. And I think the big difference other than actual like, country level shutdowns, which we clearly haven't done. We've had, you know, federalism is a weird thing in a lot of ways, but leaving states to be in charge of things has been most, there were some moments where everybody was on the same page and other moments where I think there was a bit more pressure um, from one state or another state to open up. Possibly prematurely, right? An economist that I know posted on Facebook something to the effect of, you know, he's a, a big like CrossFit guy and he was so excited that he lives on a state line or near a state line so he could go across the state line to go to the gym that opened there. And so there was a bit of this cross-border pressure that, you know, if if we said, you know, the whole U.S. shuts down, we wouldn't have had. So I think, I think the federalism component of this patchwork of policies, I think it's potentially problematic and that it created some gamesmanship. It put a lot of pressure on specifically Republican governors to reopen. Um, Here in Indiana, I think we've been very fortunate that Holcomb was a little slow on the gas to reopen. And I think that that was really good. But you can look at other Republican governors who clearly felt the pressure to, to reopen more quickly than they should have. So I would say what Europe did, the country level shutdowns, I think were really important. And I also think that the way that they managed their aid to companies to keep their payrolls running was a lot better than what we did um, so sort of as a as we're seeing more and more on the back end of what happened with the PPP program um, we're finding out that it didn't go necessarily where it was most needed so a lot of small businesses that were legit struggling during the shutdown had a really hard time getting loans. I know multiple local business owners here in Lafayette who could not get loans. I know a local accountant who once they pushed back the tax dates, he spent a ton of time trying to get his clients set up with PPP loans. And he said there were all of these hurdles set up to keep them from getting it. So and then we find out that Kanye West got millions of dollars through it, right? Like, so, so I think that the way that we manage our payroll protection for these companies that we're having to furlough workers or you know just ask them not to show up, right? Um, I think the goal should have been to get aid to these small businesses that were at risk of shutting down let them keep paying their workers, let them keep paying their rent, because those are the businesses that are now starting to go under, and so I think that if we had protected our small businesses better, this push to reopen would have been a little bit less, I guess, militant, uh, which which, in some cases, especially in Michigan, um, for example, things did get legit militant with, you know, weapons and everything, so I, I think that We definitely reopened too early. Um, I mean, if you look at the numbers as of it is July 21st, that's very clear. Um, But I think that the European Union is probably the best data point to consider for how we could have done it better. And I think that you know we're talking about getting rid of the additional $600 in unemployment benefits in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, it's up in the air right now. Um, the Republicans are trying to come up with what they can agree to, and you know, in any type of legislation in the Senate. And so, then um, it sounds like the president is very much against the $600 additional uh, dollars of UI benefits. So I think I think that we have to, yeah, we have to think that any removal of support from businesses and workers at this point is going to put more pressure on us to reopen. And I know that there are political reasons to want that, but like, let me go on the record and say, economists care more about saving lives than the economy. Any economist who tells you otherwise is probably like, take a look at their CV. They're probably, you know, a VC person, you know, they work for some kind of venture capital firm and they called themselves an economist because they got an undergrad degree in it, which, you know, these days is enough to take you pretty far. But I would say I don't know any economists who think it's worth sacrificing lives for the economy. And so, you know, I think we we should be throwing money at people to try to keep jobs, keep companies, but at the same time, focus on keeping people home and saving lives for sure.
2: In today's episode, we tried our best to step back and look at some data, behavior, and processes that in certain cases are in need of a thorough rethinking, but more generally tell us something about human behavior and how deeply interconnected we all are. Behind our questions and explorations throughout this series is a deep concern for the health of humanity on many levels, certainly where the current COVID-19 crisis is concerned, but also where so many seemingly failing and inadequate components of our 21st century society in the broadest sense is concerned. To be clear, our explorations here are about human beings, how we make decisions and how we limit our decision-making processes, how we are affected physiologically and mentally by not just this world-transforming virus, but also aspects of our lives that cover the range from the global to the local and all points in between. Aspects such as our economy, our food supply chains, and our social interaction with one another, especially in a time during which that interaction has been, rightly so, limited in the public sphere. All this to say that while exploring something as specific as crime data might seem on the surface a significant detour from questions about our mental health during the pandemic, our broader economic outlook, and how and from where our food comes to us, in our mind, it all revolves around a more fundamental problem. This pandemic, if nothing else, has shown us that so much of our world needs to change. From systemic and institutional inequities and injustices, to how we treat one another and recognize the hard work that so many people, from farmers to nurses, grocery store employees to crisis center staff, are doing to keep all of us going in as healthy and safe a manner as possible. Especially where that hard work is concerned, we think it important to remind listeners that this hard work was happening long before the pandemic came into our lives, has become more challenging during it, and needs to be better recognized and appreciated now and in the future, whenever we get past the pandemic. On that latter piece, in our next episode we'll discuss the post-pandemic world, if we can even name such a thing at this juncture, and what it might look like, what we hope will change, and the potential for life to get better after this global struggle. That's it for today's show. Caroline will be back next week after some well-deserved time off, but I wanted to mention that the show wouldn't be what it is without her, and I'm really looking forward to having her back. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.
1: The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Tarity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue.